you know the topic of the Dhamma talk, the second part of the factors of awakening. This teaching on the seven factors of awakening helps us move toward understanding. And what is it that we understand? Well, basically, we're seeing the Four Noble Truths. Again and again, we're seeing suffering, the cause of suffering, and sometimes we see the end towards suffering. And what we're practicing is the path. And the Buddha said over and over again, and I think this was said, that his only interest in teaching the Dhamma was exactly for that reason, that we see suffering, that we understand its cause, and that we can end it. And it's really possible to end suffering. That's why we're here. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any meaning for us to be sitting here hours after hours and doing our walking. Now, whatever we think, and you might wonder about techniques or ways of practice, the essence of the teaching is the same, whether we're practicing Tibetan Buddhism or even Vedanta. And I'd like to um, offer two different quotes from two different um, sources. One is from Gelek Rinpoche, the Tibetan, and the other one is from Ma- Nisargadatta Maharaj that wrote, I am that, and he's an Advaita um, Indian non-duality teacher. And you'll see how close these two quotes are, and it's just fascinating to Um, watch how in the essence of the path we are meant to learn in a way that will end by seeing exactly what it is that we can transform. So the first quote is, the capability of human life is beyond our imagination. This capability is unique What counts is the human capacity to investigate and transform our own mind and the world around us in a powerful and positive direction. And I think that we can say that we're doing this, that it's our aspiration to transform our mind, and then through understanding our mind, we transform the world around us in a powerful and positive direction in the way that we can. The second quote is saying this, by being with yourself, by watching yourself in your practice with alert interest, with the intention to understand rather than to judge, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, because it is there, you encourage the deep to come to the surface and enrich your life and consciousness with its captive energies. This is the great work of mindfulness, of awareness. It removes obstacles and releases energies by understanding the nature of life and mind. Wisdom is the door to freedom, and alert attention is the mother of wisdom. Isn't that beautiful? Wisdom is the door to freedom, and alert attention is the mother of wisdom. So we probably understand a little bit more by now with the Dharma talks and our inner process about what this transformation is about and how it happens. It manifests with the activation of positive qualities that are lying deep within us. It's not that we don't have them. And we call forth this incredible powerful force of alert attention, mindfulness, that enables the understanding moment by moment. It's this direct seeing that has the capacity to transform the mind. And it's not due to our beliefs, our ideas, our concepts that we will do so. 
it really is not about representing ourselves a better path. So it's not about tending the mind to change it through ideas or change other people because we don't like the way they're behaving. But it's really allowing this process of understanding, which requires a greater and greater acceptance of what is. And that is mindfulness, which will lead to greater mindfulness that will enable that transformation. With the power of mindfulness, there are six other qualities that we have at our disposal that will help us see through the ideas, the thoughts, the concepts, and touch into our inherent nature. So just as a reminder, if you've forgotten what they are, (laughs) and apparently my dear colleague said that all evening last time I pronounced a word completely wrong, so I will say it again (laughs) in case you didn't... um, understand the word that I pronounced all evening last Sunday, and that word is arousing. (laughs) I've learned my lesson since (laughs) I had a week to pronounce this word right. (laughs) Three arousing qualities, (laughs) which are investigation, energy, and joy, or rapture. And once mindfulness connects, investigates, penetrates, and explores we really see through the nature and understand phenomena as it is. It raises the level of interest, and it has the power to lighten up that which has been in the dark, that which we haven't seen. And so this exploration leads one to have more and more energy. That interest brings energy or courage, you can say, strength of heart. And that natural interest just develops over and over again. That desire to keep going really becomes quite natural. And the joy or the rapture is not that we see only something pleasant. It's the joy, the rapture of seeing the truth, of connecting with the reality and enabling that to be okay. seeing the truth and not moving away from what is presented to us, even if there are afflictive emotions, difficult mind states. And it's important here to realize that these factors of awakening manifest all along, even if there is the presence of a very Deeply rooted, difficult emotion. Rebecca talked about difficult mind states and on Friday night and how we can bring balance as we're practicing. It's exactly those qualities of the seven factors which are clearly manifesting even though we don't notice it at times. We're so entangled in trying to meet fear or sadness or anger, that we're not noticing that in reality there is a nourishment of those factors of awakening. And I'd like to read a story which really illustrates this very well. It's incredible uh, illustration of how one can be on the path, stay on the path, and release one of the deepest difficult emotion. This is a story from Achancha's book, and he's telling it himself. In Thailand, it's said that there's a very strong ghost culture. And when children hear of very scary stories, there's always ghosts in them. And they're really nasty and gory and 
they're filled with all sorts of blood and guts and evil and malevolence. And, you know, even here, maybe we don't hear so much about ghosts. But so in a child, that's where fear can really manifest quite strongly, quite powerfully. And this fear was one of the greatest fear that the great Thai forest master, Achan Shah, had in himself. And it's something that really bothered Achan Shah. And he had been a monk for quite some time and was well aware that he had been avoiding this fear. It was something he had never really wanted to meet, really resolve. And he was known to be a self-reliant and strong monk, yet also known to have extreme fear of these goats. And when going alone to practice in the forest, he would continually recite protective verses to keep the ghosts away, <laughs> which was a, probably a, one way to do, you know, one good means. Once in his practice, he decided to go straight at this fear, had the strength of heart, and he decided he had run away from it long enough, he was going to face it. So Achancha decided to set up his mosquito net and camped in a place in the burning ground outside the village where he had been staying. And you should imagine the burning ground to be a place where there would be, of course, full exposure or exposition of ghosts. And <laughs> what in his mind was ghost, but here we would see maybe spirits or corpse. And he said it took every ounce of his effort to put one foot in front of the other to enter the burning ground. As dusk was falling, his mind was screaming, Don't be ridiculous. Don't do this. It's not good for your practice. Be reasonable. Maybe you can do this later, another time, next year, when you'll have your practice more together. <laughs> Don't we do this? But he willed himself to stay and set up his camping place. Once he put up the mosquito net, he went in and just sat there. There had been a funeral of a child that day, and Atanta had been fine since everyone was around. Then during that first night, he became so afraid, he just locked himself in one spot. When dawn came, he said to himself, Oh, great, I've done it. I've done my cremation thing. I'm off. <laughs> But then he realized and said to himself, No, no, no. That's not transcending fear. That's just enduring. I haven't gotten through this at all. I'm still absolutely terrified. I can give myself the excuse that I don't have to do it, but the terror is still here in me. I need to stay tonight. And he hoped that there wouldn't be another burning that evening. But sure enough, an adult had died and was cremated that day. So during the day... Everyone was around, and here again he was fine, and as soon as the night came, he was left alone. All that was left was his mosquito net for protection and himself. You might think that a mosquito net is not a great protection, but to Achanchai it felt like a fortress <laughs> circled with seven concentric walls. <laughs> he says in his autobiography, even the presence of my alms bowl was reassuring. He made the resolution to sit there and to be with his emotions with the fear. The night before, he thought that there had been familiar noises, nothing special. On the second night, things changed. He was sitting there around midnight when he thought he heard footsteps. Achancha was sitting there thinking, I hear footsteps. It's not an animal. It's a two-footed creature. And the person is coming from the fire. So he said to himself, don't be ridiculous. Maybe it's one of the villagers coming to see if I'm all right. Maybe they've come to offer me something, and if they do, they will come up and say hello. Nevertheless, he had taken the resolve to stay seated with his eyes closed. Then he heard these footsteps, thump, 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 getting closer and closer. He started to tighten up. The sweat poured out of him, and he told himself, Oh, don't panic. It's just one of the villagers with heavy steps. In his mind, he could see the skeleton with guts hanging out, <laughs> eyes dropping down the cheek, and a half-burnt mouth. It really happens to all of us, doesn't it? As he felt this mess of flesh walking towards him, he told himself, Don't believe this. This is just your imagination. Stop. Be still. Concentrate. 
and let go of the fear. Meanwhile, the footsteps were getting closer and closer. Then he heard the steps going around and around him, thump, 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 circling around him. By this time, he was in a state of white-hot fear. He had gone beyond anxiety. His body was locked solid and sweating bullets. He was absolutely rigid. Then this presence came and stood right in front of him. Achancha was still determined not to open his eyes, and at this point he was so completely fear-stricken it burst. The fear system was going at absolutely full force when suddenly he had the thought, all these years I've been reciting, the body is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, the body is not self, feeling are not self. So he was afraid, but he was also very concentrated and alert. The insight flashed into his mind, even if this is some terrible ghost or monster that is going to attack me, all that it can attack is that which is not me. <laughs> and instantly the feelings of terror evaporated. It was like switching on a light. It disappeared completely and he went into an incredibly joyful state. He went straight from total dukkha, pain, to an extraordinary bliss. His mind was very alert, and as that happened, he heard the footsteps getting fainter. Eventually, the footsteps disappeared. He never found out their source. <laughs> Achancha sat there without moving until dawn. During night, it poured. Tears of rapture ran down his face and mixed with the rain. Nothing in the world could have moved him. He was now in a pure state of calm, of rest, in a place of true refuge in a safe place. And he remembered the Buddha saying that the place of complete refuge is within. That is it. Regardless of the situation, no matter what I meet, he told himself, it is just a matter of doing the practice. It's amazing. It's just exactly what we're doing here. And there's so many ways that this process is emerging for us. Even if we have many contours <laughs> and we take a lot of uh, different pathways, this is our practice. And very clearly, the factors of awakening were there. Adjacent to the fear. And this is exactly what is happening for us all, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to do the path. It would be really too difficult. So that gladness is where we stay, that rapture is essential. When we meet times when there is that quality of energy which brings up that rapture, It uplifts the heart and mind, and it gives a strength of courage. Now, like I said the other night, rapture can easily move into extreme, which then we can have some lightness, but we get very excited about the rapture or the joy that is present, and it gets out of hand, and there's over-excitement, over-exuberance, which raises the level of energy too much, and that's when we feel restlessness. We then need to relax. In my own practice, I've had a lot of this at the beginning, and seeing Sayadu Pandita quite frequently in my interviews, I think for <laughs> at least three weeks, the advice was one phrase, And he was just saying, you are too excited. <laughs> Cultivate peace. And my response was, how do I do that? <laughs> This mindfulness will take care of it. Mindfulness balances. Just stay present. Don't get excited about what is happening. And it wasn't seeing fantastic things, I can say. <laughs> It was just 
Tranquility often comes after we've experienced some ease in the body and the mind. And it's said that tranquility is nourished by ease of well-being in the body and in the mind. Just like in Anchancha's story or the Buddha's enlightenment story where it's said that he stayed completely still for a number of days, just couldn't move from the state of peace. Well, that was ultimate peace, wasn't it? So it said that tranquility is like the cool shade of a tree to a person that has been in the hot sun. It's a state of mind that we can relax into for a moment. And often we miss that moment because we're already heading to meet the next experience. And so that's why when we say, if it's kind of neutral, if there's not much happening, just allow yourself to meet that experience. Let go of the tension and no need to search for another experience. This is when we allow ourselves to be receptive and can let go of the tendency to control, to want another experience. And we just miss the quality of calm, of tranquility. It's extremely helpful if we've had a cycle of turmoil, whether with a physical sensation or with a mind state, something which has been really difficult. It's helpful to notice when that is changing, when there is a release in the mind, in the body, and to just allow that calm, that state of no intensity to be there. And to not confuse that for boredom. Calm and boredom can be confused. Because suddenly the shift of the present experience can be so different that we might say, okay, now what? <laughs> and, not, and miss the possibility of calm. This is a quote from Machan Chah. He says, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. And that's what calm does. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is a form of happiness. We're so not used to it because in our lives the intensity is just so heightened that that state of calm is often not valued. In our practice, it's a factor of awakening. (laughs) So do remember that. Step into the coolness of the shade whenever it is possible for you. Don't miss the opportunity. Now that tranquility happens with the changing flow of experiences. There was a point in my practice that I thought that I would experience stillness and that would happen only when everything would stop. Like, you know, not feeling the breath anymore, for example, (laughs) really kind of 
thinking that there was a possibility of stopping the breath. And it's not that at all that we're talking about. It's kind of the mindfulness that is steady enough and that allows us to be just present with what is. So again, it's a factor of awakening which is not belonging to anyone. It's not personal. We can't control. You can't say, okay, now I'm going to be calm. (laughs) You might welcome that factor of enlightenment or quality in a way that it's true that if we incline the mind towards those factors rather than towards stress or restlessness, they do come forth more easily. And so it's quite helpful to show up and to say, hey, what is happening right here? Is there calm? And to notice what's happening. What is the experience being recepting? and then letting go. Now the habit of doing in our practice is something that needs to be seen. Whatever form you have of doing something is just preventing one from enabling the deepening process in our practice. Doing in the way that we might want to change things, the course, the events. It may be a doing where we're constantly seeking for new experiences. Oh, I've seen that already. (laughs) And what can we see that's a new experience after three weeks and a half (laughs) of practice here, you know? So it's that constant seeking for something which we haven't seen before. It may be that we're ignoring something that wants to be showing, just like Achal Chai. It went through a whole process, years of ignoring his fear, and then suddenly one day opening to, oh yeah, I don't think I can really um, further my practice or develop my practice if I don't give some time to this particular experience. So it's possible that there's a sense of ignoring or avoiding So as we notice doing, we might just be aware of that attitude in the mind, and it already gives a relief. There's an energetic release when we notice that that's what's happening, that there's constantly a manipulation that's being held there in the background. And to appreciate the fact of allowing to see that and pull back. One of my teachers say, the only real thing that you need to do is to show up. And then the rest is up to the flow of changing experiences, the natural law of Dhamma. He says, often people show up, and then what happens is they want a specific experience, which is then an interference. So the second stabilizing factor is that steadiness or concentration, which comes from that attitude of calm, of receptivity, of allowing, of stillness, with all the factors that we've mentioned before. Very spontaneously, in a way, the mind comes to a collectedness, and there's a gathering of that energy that allows one to stay present. It's that ability to stay with experience. Now, it's important to realize that we are not here emphasizing one particular experience, and you've probably understood that by now, that it's not about focusing only on one object because we're doing vipassana practice, and the purpose of our practice here is to see things as they are. 
So what is it that is steady? What is it that is stabilized in a way, collected? It's the power of mindfulness itself. That one-pointedness is the steadiness of mindfulness. So that mindfulness does not only land on experience, on whatever is present, but it can rest and it can allow to see all the different appearances that land in the mind, moment by moment. And with time, when there's a steadiness and a concentration, there's simply a relaxing into the present moment. And it may be that at times we even notice that the mind finds that it's pretty nice to just stay in the present moment. And it doesn't want to go somewhere else, whether in the past, in the story that we've seen 10,000 times, or even imagining. And there are moments, maybe they're brief, but there are moments when there's a taste of the preciousness of just that concentration, steadiness of mind with what is. The mind simply doesn't need anything else than what it's offered. And so here we can say that concentration is just the opposite state of scatteredness or distractedness. There's no dispersion. And we can't make ourselves stay. You'll be surprised to hear that the proximate cause of concentration or steadiness of mind is happiness in the mind. It's gladness. When the mind is relaxed, then it's possible for it to stay, to be present. So we don't force the focus in any way. What we do attend to and that you've probably got the secret by now, is you do emphasize continuity of mindfulness, specifically here in this kind of practice. So we can't strive for concentration, but because then we'd be really kind of ambitious, but we do try to attend to the present moment with whatever it offers And at times, you know, we've said how helpful it is to kind of also narrow the focus and bring the mind towards one type of experience. could be the breath or the body, entire body, or just hearing. Both are valuable. And it's for us to know there's no right or wrong here. Achana Moreau in Silent Rain explains this very well. He says, people always ask, should I adopt this practice and be very strict, staying on one focus, or should I be more easy going and go with the flow? And he says, if you set yourself a task to do, should you stick to it, or should you just be ready to adapt to the condition? That's a real valuable question. And the answer to that, he says, we love to have a formula to follow, a simple pattern that we can always obey that tells us we should be like this and do this or be like that. But in many ways, we need to be like a tree, he says. A tree has both hardness, firmness, and it also has flexibility. If a tree had just firmness, then when the fierce wind blows, the tree would break. The branch will snap. If the tree has just flexibility and no rigidity at all, then it can't stand up. It has no resilience. It will bend too easily. So in the same way, our practice uses both these qualities, being firm and independent within ourselves, staying with that which we have committed ourselves to, and at the same time being ready to bend, to move and shift according to the time, place, and situation. Now, one can think that these qualities are conflicting, 
but they're not. Like in a tree, we don't think of the soft curves of a tall tree and the way it moves in the wind as being something disharmonious or ugly, do we? <laughs> we don't see its hardness and softness fighting against each other. And so here in the same way, that quality of stillness, of firmness, of steadiness of mind is also aligned with the flexibility of mind, of movement, of being able to take in experience as they arise and pass away. What one truly needs to know is that worry or anxiety brings us out of the moment. And often we do worry about how much concentration we have and if we have enough and we always want more concentration. I've had this pattern for myself thinking that concentration is really important because we want to be present. And worrying about it really didn't help my practice. I can, if it is of any help for you, um, it will only do one thing, is bring more tension. (laughs) More tension to get it. So it's quite the opposite, that ease and that the spiral towards relaxation and allowing is what will be helpful in regard to that quality of mind. Continuity of mindfulness is what brings steadiness in the mind. Sometimes it's very helpful to narrow the focus and just attend for some time to one type of object, but to not stay there. I've also seen in my practice how easily one can be attached to concentration because it's safe, because, of course, the hindrances are at bay, at least some of them. And here in our Vipassana practice, we are working in the direction of uprooting the hindrances, not just enabling to not be in the scenery here in the landscape And then we go out in the world and, oh, they're all back. (laughs) That's not a very good news. So it's to understand that we're training the mind to head towards wisdom. That wisdom and freedom is the goal. Says Achancha, he says, normally the untrained mind is full of worries and anxieties. So when a bit of concentration arises in practice, you easily become attached to it, mistaking states of tranquility for the end of meditation. Sometimes you may even think you have put an end to lust, greed, or hatred, only to be overwhelmed by them later on. Actually, it is worse to be caught in calmness than to be stuck in agitation because at least you will want to escape from agitation. (laughs) Whereas you are content to remain in calmness and not go any further. (laughs) That's so true. (laughs) When extraordinary, clear, blissful states arise from insight practice, do not cling to them. Although this tranquility has a sweet taste, it too must be seen as impermanent unsatisfactory, and empty. Absorption is not what the Buddha found essential in his meditation. Practice without thought of attaining absorption or any special state. Just know whether the mind is calm, concentrated, or not. And if so, whether a little or a lot. (laughs) In this way, it will develop on its own. To concentrate is like turning on the switch, and wisdom is the resulting light. Without the switch, there is no light, but we should not waste our time playing with the switch. (laughs) 
Likewise, concentration is the empty bowl and wisdom is the food that fills it and makes the meal. So you see how concentration and wisdom work hand in hand. Definitely important factor of awakening. Yet, not the goal. Taking it for what it is. Practicing non-attachment, non-clinging in each moment. And so here it's valuable to notice if there are preferences that we have in our practice. Notice, now you might have seen for all the hours that you're practicing, if you have attachments to certain mind states. talked a lot about craving for sense pleasure and that's one of the attachments but we can also notice that the attachments to meditative states or spiritual experiences is just another kind of attachment that we need to be aware of in our practice just be aware that's all seeing them for what they are I have a little story. <laughs> when I did my first long intensive retreat, it was very hard. I think I said this, I was in Nepal for a month and the conditions were very difficult. And there was one day that I had some peace during a walking meditation. I was a sitter <laughs> and I did not like the walking as much as the sitting. And I was practicing in that one spot for the whole day. And I thought, okay, now I think that I have a quality of practice in walking that is similar to sitting. And so I began really getting attached to my state. But the next day, I went back to the walking practice and it was just awful. All this resistance was so bad. It was just like the mind was all over the place, didn't want to do it. And it was really difficult. And I thought, where was that practice that I had yesterday? And the thought in my mind went, oh, I better go back to that spot where I was practicing. (laughs) You know, thinking that it was about the spot. It's just so fascinating how the mind can trick us in a way of sweet ignorance, you know. Ignorance is bliss, (laughs) we say. And it didn't much (laughs) matter that sometimes humor helps (laughs) in practice. So insights will arise. I had a great insight that moment (laughs) of realizing that It wasn't about any condition, you know, outer or inner. It was just really allowing the unpleasantness to be felt. It's so easy to zap. (laughs) The third and last stabilizing factor is equanimity. So we have calm or tranquility, concentration or steadiness of mind, and equanimity. This is a little poem from one of the earliest Buddhist nuns. She says, if your mind becomes firm like a rock and no longer shakes in a world where everything is shaking, your mind will be your greatest friend and suffering will not come your way. Equanimity comes about as the result of all the previous qualities that we've been talking about. One nourishing the other, 
It is this ability to be able to be with whatever is presenting itself, with whatever is emerging. Deep, deep quality of allowing. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant is not relevant. Relevant? (laughs) Here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's not that we don't feel anything. It's we feel. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, there's no doubt that sensations are still there. It's not that we've been knocked out. But simply, there is no reactivity in the mind. It's just, oh, unpleasant feels like this. And the mind is pliable, flexible, steady, calm, and can just meet that experience as it shows itself. Unpleasant feels like this. So we don't grasp and don't push away. Allowing the change and the flow of experience to come and go. It's the result of a balanced mind. Quite an extraordinary quality. And we've all had moments of this quality. You know, you may think, oh, that's, I don't know that (laughs) quality of mind. And yes, there are moments when we're just with what is and we're allowing things to be just the way they are. There's the cessation of reactivity. The conditions are just right. An image that is used, of course, to illustrate the quality of equanimity is that of a mountain. And you know how the mountain sits and it receives the sunshine and the rain falls on the mountain and it may get covered with snow or it may be struck by lightning. All these different qualities that manifest. Whatever happens to that mountain. It just remains unwavering. There's that quality of unwavering. doesn't waver. Equanimity, of course, is the ground for freedom. Through wisdom. As a factor of awakening, it has a function. And that function is to fill up where there is a lack and to reduce where there is excess so we don't fall into the extremes of reactivity, whether it's for or against. So equanimity holds the hand of mindfulness. You can say it arrests the mind before it falls into liking and disliking. That's the quality great power of mind to experience that through all the experiences, whatever we're mindful of, whether it's a painful sensation or a felt sense experience, tasting, touching, or thought, there's that clear possibility of not getting caught. It's this quality that gives us a greater strength of heart to stay in the process. Just stay present. And it's also that quality that enables us to say, oh, there's greater ease here. And we understand more and more how the workings of the mind is happening. How grasping causes suffering. How opening to grasping when it is there, just releases the suffering. How we can let go of our attachments to the various aspects of ourself. And we remember when that quality is present, it's 
truly possible then with that quality being present that we notice that this is not ours. Whatever it is, it's not my pain, it's not my thought, it's just a thought, it's just the natural phenomena emerging. So there, there isn't a grasping to I, me, or mine there. The Buddha was once asked, what is the distance between suffering and the end of suffering? He says, is there, are they far away from one another, suffering and non-suffering? And he says, the distance can be traversed in the blink of an eye. That's quite an image, isn't it? Just the blink of an eye and end of suffering. Back into suffering. And we go through these movements. So notice in your practice how you can help yourself with these factors of awakening. Just by beginning to see, at times, noticing if they are present in your practice. If being mindful of mindfulness. Is mindfulness present? Is investigation present? Energy? Joy? Tranquility? Calm? Steadiness of mind or concentration? Equanimity? It will help support the practice. And here again, it's not to make them happen. They naturally will arise with the continuity of mindfulness. If we dedicate ourselves to the practice, very naturally there's a deepening and a strengthening of these qualities. As these qualities are strengthening, there is a reduction of the hindrances. So to notice in our heart and mind if there's a possibility of seeing these emerge. I know that for myself, it has been truly helpful to review at times which of these seven factors is weak. You know, we each have one, two, three maybe (laughs) that are weaker than others because we have different tendencies. If we're someone with a lot of energy, then energy will be present and maybe not calm or stillness. If we're a quiet person and very calm, maybe there needs to be a little more energy offered to our practice. And to do this without judgment, but really with the force of interest, Now, these factors of awakening are also maturing in our daily life. It's impressive to see that, you know, you may think, oh, I have to be on a three-month course or six-week course to have the factors of awakening emerge. And it's not so. (laughs) They are qualities that can be totally integrated in our daily life. And that's quite extraordinary. And to end, I'll read a teaching that was offered from the great Thai master Achan Buddhadasa, who taught the factors of awakening to farmers in his village. It's called Plowing Your Fields with the Factors of Awakening. (laughs) Much of Achan Buddhadasa's teaching involved applying the teachings to ordinary life. His thesis was that the point of being a Buddhist is to live without suffering and not just out in some cave or on a meditation retreat or in the monastery, but in the midst of whatever we're doing. And the way to live without suffering is to transform whatever we're doing, whether plowing the rice fields, brushing your teeth, doing the dishes into a practice of the path. He was grounded in his environment, so he would often talk about the seven factors of awakening in very colloquial terms. 
During his lifetime, the Thai farmers in the neighborhood of Swan Mok Monastery were still using water buffaloes for plowing their fields. They hardly do that anymore due to economic changes, and there's not much rice farming there anymore. But it was different in the old days. He would say to the villagers, for a farmer to plow his fields, he needs to use the seven factors of awakening. First of all, you have to be very aware of what you're doing. You have to be mindful of your buffalo, and you, do, and you have to be mindful of the plow. If the plow goes too deep, it gets stuck. If it's too shallow, it doesn't do any good. You have to be mindful of where you turn, of what signals you are giving the buffalo, and a host of other factors. And not only mindful, but you need to be constantly investigating while you are plowing the field with the water buffalo. The mind has to be alert in checking things out as you go, examining the quality of the soil, the level of moisture, the state of the buffalo, the location of obstacles. You have to be learning in the process. You have to put energy into it, both physical and mental energy. Without energy, you may space out and get lax. If your buffalo is a good one, he may just keep going for a while. But some buffaloes are naughty, as are horses and mules. And if they discern and slackness on your hold, they'll take advantage of it. You also need a certain amount of satisfaction in what you're doing. Whether we're plowing a field or practicing meditation, anything can be boring or burdensome if we don't find satisfaction in it. Or it can be fun, in a dharmic sense. Interesting, rewarding. We're better able to pursue what we find satisfying in a wholesome way. And this satisfaction will bring you with a state of calm. If we're plowing our field, but we're agitated physically, we'll annoy or startle the buffalo. If our mind's agitated, it'll interfere with some of the other factors. It's easier to be present, whether plowing the field or doing meditation practice when calm. When the mind settles down, it naturally becomes more focused. The forces that agitate and distract the mind become eliminated and it is easier for the mind to remain settled upon a single task. Both the farmer and the buffalo need to be undistracted if the field is to get plowed before dark. When all these factors are present and they mutually reinforce one another, the mind gains the ability to just watch over and keep things on track. The effort becomes effortless, so to speak, Equanimity is like that, when you're completely in balance and yet you have some momentum. You don't make mistakes and the work just appears to move forward on its own. This is how the seven factors of awakening can work together to turn any activity of daily life into a rewarding practice of progressing on the path of awakening. Mm-hmm. Let's sit for just a few minutes. May the seven factors of awakening emerge and support your practice. And may all the good energies and fruits of your practice be for the well-being and happiness of all beings everywhere.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.